Welcome to Season 3 of Media Minded, the show guiding you through the age of disinformation. This season is a little bit different. It's all about NATO. Yes, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. With the help of media and defense experts, we'll be breaking down what NATO is all about. We'll be focusing on cyber attacks, decision making, public policy, crisis management, and you know it wouldn't be media-minded if we didn't sprinkle in a little disinformation in the mix. This podcast is produced by Shata UK, the leading political and media literacy organization, and is made possible by the generous support and sponsorship of the US mission to NATO. I'm your host, Matteo Bergamini, founder and CEO of Shata UK, here to teach you more about global security through the lens of NATO. Let's get to it. Hello, everyone. So I am joined today by Piers Cazalet. Piers um, joined the international staff of NATO as head of press and media and deputy spokesperson. He leads a team of 25 staffers, providing the full range of media services to the Secretary General and NATO HQ more widely, including media engagement and monitoring, media operations, and uh, of course, a bit of speech writing as well. Uh, thank you for joining us, Piers. Thank you very much for having me. So if you can um, start off by um, telling us a little bit about like, what does what, what your day-to-day -day job entail? Like, what does is, what is a, a normal day look like if there is one? Um, well, first of all, I think I'd start by saying um, there is no thing as, uh, as a normal day, largely because uh, we, uh, we depend very much on what's going on in the media and what's driving uh, the media on any particular day. Um, sometimes we can have some fairly quiet days where there's not a lot of discussion of NATO or security defense issues uh, in the media. Uh, other days we know we have um, uh, particular activities going on, things that we're deeply involved with, or for some reason there's uh, a lot of coverage. Um, and just to give you an example, uh, yesterday we hosted here a meeting of the NATO-Russia Council, oh, wow. uh, which is the first time uh, NATO uh, and Russia met for two and a half years. Um, and this was uh, the, the whole day was back to back media. So we were tracking media. Uh, we were producing um, uh, content for the secretary general uh, for his press conference in the afternoon. Uh, we were doing uh, background briefings for the media, uh, working on social media and other digital content to uh, to put out. So it, it depends very much on uh, any given day uh, what drives us. That's amazing. And uh considering the uh, the current the current climate globally i bet that meeting was uh, uh how should i put it interesting it's, uh... it it was a it was a very interesting meeting uh, i mean we were very happy with it in that uh, uh, you know to to, to reestablish dialogue uh, was great so um and i think the the fact that it got such good coverage mm. is an indication of the interest that uh, the world has uh, in the issue of course of course and um going on to so what what NATO's kind of public um, public role is. Um, what does NATO mean by public diplomacy? Uh, it's a very good question because uh, different organizations, uh, different companies can mean different things by public diplomacy. Mm. For us, 
it's about um, explaining who we are, uh, explaining uh, what you do, uh, what we do, and talking about um, the defense and security issues that affect all the people who live in uh, NATO countries. Sometimes these can be uh, very complex. Sometimes these can be issues which uh, are not necessarily attractive to the wider public, uh, not necessarily interesting to the wider public, uh, but their security and defense is what underpins everything else that we do. So we, we try to explain uh, to our publics uh, and to the publics of uh, partner countries, so co the countries that we work with who aren't members of NATO, uh, to explain uh, what we're doing and why. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, which is which is amazing, and obviously, you know, we often hear about these these big international organisations like NATO, um, but often sometimes in passing, and you don't really ever get to grips with what the organisation does. Um, and NATO, of course, has a long history of um, public diplomacy. Um, why, why why do you think it's in, uh, it's important for NATO to do this? Like, why is it at the heart of what? Of, of one of NATO's aims. So it's a defense organization after all. So some people will be questioning, well, why, why is it important that people know what it is? Well, um, I, I think for a number of reasons. Uh, firstly, um, as I was saying earlier, defense and security is something which underpins everything else we uh, do in Western countries. So of course. Because, because we are secure, because we have effective defense, uh, it means that uh, we can carry on our lives as normal, we can carry on our political lives, we can carry on our economic lives, uh, we can go to school without any problems, we can get the healthcare we need. Uh, everything uh, that we do in our countries has to be protected and underpinned by uh, security and defense. Mm. Secondly, uh, I think it's very important that uh, we try to explain to people why NATO and what NATO's role is in providing uh, security and defense. And, and here it is. It's a very unique organization um, based around the concept of what we call collective defense, which basically means of, of the 30 member states uh, who are uh, members of NATO, um, if any one of those member states uh, is attacked, then the other 29 member states will come to uh, the defense uh, of that country. Now, in practice, uh, this has only happened once in NATO's 72 years of existence. Uh, and this was in 2001, after the United States uh, was attacked by uh, Al-Qaeda uh, with the September 11th attacks. Mm -hmm. um, and it, in a way, the just the principle of collective defense, I think, has been enough to protect uh, the alliance, protect alliance countries and deter attacks. Uh, on NATO, uh, on, on NATO countries, um, from other countries. So the message and getting that message out is incredibly important because it forms uh, part of the backbone of deterrence. Um, and, and it really is an important concept. Um, and it's one that's unique in uh, the history of the world and indeed uh, in the world today. Mm -hmm. No, definitely. And it's, and, and you know, learning about these things is, is I would argue, really important just because Often we are, you know, very privileged in, in, in the countries we live in. Um, we've got a lot of um, rights and freedoms and so forth. And often we can forget where those come from and uh, or how they originated rather and why we still got them today. So understanding, you know, that, th that this stuff isn't isn't a guarantee. It's not like it's a, it's a natural state of being in the sense that, you know, any given moment, um, 
you know some 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 of our rights could be eroded or or you know these things are are there for a reason and there are organizations and so forth that are protecting amplifying and so forth so um i could definitely um agree with that and and on 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 the the kind of purpose of public diplomacy um how does nato promote democracy abroad um through this kind of direct engagement both online and in person uh, yes, I mean we 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 have a number of tools for uh, for doing it. Firstly, um, I think it's interesting to go back um, to the beginning of NATO. NATO started in uh, 1949, mm-hmm. and just look at look and see how public diplomacy has developed in those years. And in 1949, um, when NATO first started, and the first enlargements were then in uh, 49, and then 1952. So shortly afterwards, there, there was a big effort. Uh, to try to explain NATO to um, uh, what were then called home audiences. Mm-hmm. And um, interestingly, there was at the time, um, there was a NATO public diplomacy van that, that went around. And literally, it was a massive great van, like a big bus, with all sorts of public diplomacy material in the language of the country that it was in. And it would drive around from town to town and people would go, um, NATO people would be on the bus, they would talk to uh, local audiences, they would give out leaflets and information and try to engage with the public at that uh, level. That's amazing. This like a course. like a road trip, like a uh, a NATO tour exactly. bus. Exactly, like, <laughs> like like a road show. It would have been absolutely fascinating, and it would have been great fun to do that at that time. Um, however, public has moved on since then. <laughs> um, uh, we've now leaped forward um, through uh, the later on in the 1950s and 60s. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had the development of television, in particular. Um, more mass production of newspapers uh, through the 1980s and then from the 1990s uh, 2000s uh, the internet of course uh, and the uh, burgeoning of social media uh, in particular in the last uh, sort of 10-15 years mm. so the tools for getting across messages have changed uh, dramatically in the last uh, 72 years uh, we focus now much more on uh, social media and digital in particular um, we try to talk to selections of uh, different audiences for different reasons. Um, and we, we may produce you know, different materials or different approaches, um, always with the core, uh, the same core principles, the same core substance, if you like, uh, but sometimes a different approach, a different color to, uh, to what we're uh, getting across in our public diplomacy. Uh, so we work quite a lot directly with uh, major newspapers who are read by uh, Opinion, form, opinion formers and decision makers, so uh, government figures, senior mm-hmm. figures. Um, we also work a lot with, um, if you like, more uh, popular uh, channels, more popular newspapers, more popular TV channels mm-hmm. that can reach broader audiences. Um, and then, as I mentioned, we work increasingly now um, digitally and on social media channels, uh, in particular uh, Instagram, uh, Twitter, Facebook, uh, depending on the different audiences we want to reach. Um, we focus mostly on um, the audiences of NATO member states, so the 30 countries who make up um, uh, the members of NATO. Mm-hmm. But we do a lot as well with uh, what we call partner countries. Um, so these are in particular neighboring countries, for example, in the Middle East and North Africa, um, but also in Eastern and Central Europe, uh, in particular Georgia, Ukraine. Um, and we have a particular outreach uh, to Russian audiences as well, uh, where we try to explain uh, NATO to uh, Russian audiences. And, and you mentioned home audiences. Do you, do you mean um, citizens that are in the member state countries? 
Uh, correct. Yeah. Pe- yeah. People who live in NATO countries. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm guessing the focus with the with the Russian audience is the kind of historic uh, relationship that Russia has with with NATO and, and vice versa. I'm guessing is the is the yeah, reason. It, and, it, and it's a lot, but, but because there's a lot of disinformation in uh, Russian media about uh, what NATO is and what NATO mm-hmm. does, uh, what objectives are. Uh, so we try to explain. Uh, ourselves and what we're doing and why we try to um, beat back some of that disinformation as well. Um, it, it's a challenge given that the media uh, space in Russia is uh, increasingly controlled. I was going to say that's uh, a hell of a gov- task. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there, there's less and less media freedom. And even in the time I've been in this role uh, for the last sort of five years, I've, I've seen it eroding dramatically. Um, but there are still some some beacons of uh, objectivity out there, and we work with them, but also with uh, with the channels who are more party free with the mm-hmm. the government line. We we try to work hard with them to explain a little bit what we're doing and why. Mm-hmm. So, for example, uh, coming back to the the big event we had yesterday, the big meeting of the NATO Russia Council, where we had NATO uh, sorry we had Russian ministers here in NATO um, for negotiations, and we worked very hard with um, the Russian media that they brought with them. Uh, to explain uh, NATO's position. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Amazing, and and you mentioned obviously um, the the uh, erosion of of, of media or, or press freedom. Um, and I was curious. So, in your time in the role, have you seen kind of globally a shift towards more or less media and press freedom? Out of curiosity, or is it hard to kind of it, dissect globally like that? In, uh, globally, I think it's hard to say, but I think um, in some countries, uh, certainly those freedoms have eroded. Mm. Uh, Russia is one country I pointed to. Uh, China uh, is another one where those media freedoms have eroded quite a lot. If you look at, in particular, some of the free media that had existed in Hong Kong, uh, which has now been uh, closed down. Oh, yeah. Um, there, are, there are other countries um, where media continue to have, free media continue to have um uh, have difficulties, but there are other countries where there have been uh, elections, more democratic governments, democratic elected governments coming into power, um, who have eased up on some uh, media freedom. So I think it depends on different parts in the world. It would be difficult to say globally whether it's uh, getting better or getting worse. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, of course, of course. And um, obviously, going going back to uh, NATO's communication activities. So the overall. Um, aim for I can gather of NATO's communications uh, activities to promote dialogue and understanding. Um, what challenges have you have you seen that NATO faces in trying to achieve this aim? Um, well, there, there are a number of challenges. I think with um, our own audiences, so mm-hmm. audience in, in NATO home countries, sometimes um, there's a misperception of what NATO is about, that it's considered to be an entirely military organization. Mm-hmm. Um, we are, in fact, a political military, um, which is which may sound like a subtle distinction, but it, it's about diplomacy as much as it is about um, uh, military. Of course. Um, so sometimes we, we, we have to work quite hard to, to explain to people that there are uh, strong political and diplomatic elements to what we do. It's not just, not just a military organization. Sometimes we we have to work hard to explain uh, our aims and the reasons uh, for our aims as well. Um, and historically, we look back to uh, a case like uh, the Kosovo campaign in back in 1999, uh, so 22, 23 uh, years ago, where NATO conducted a um, 
a military campaign uh, against Serbia to try to stop the atrocities that were uh, that were taking place in Kosovo. Um, here, it, it was a huge uh, public diplomacy battle um, with the Serbs uh, to explain what we were doing and why. I think now, after almost a generation, um, people understand much better what NATO was trying to achieve and indeed what it has achieved uh, in the time since then. Uh, the region has been peaceful since then, but public diplomacy played a, a big part in trying to um, explain that to our audiences as well as um, uh, audiences in Serbia, audiences in uh, in other parts of the uh, the region. One of the other challenges for us, I think, and it, it comes back to something I hinted at earlier, is that sometimes um, a lot of audiences in our countries are not particularly interested in security or defense is, uh, issues. Mm -hmm. Um, sometimes security can just be kind of taken for granted. If peaceful, people live in countries which are peaceful, where uh, everything works reasonably well, the trains run reasonably on time, uh, you can get to see your doctor, your kids can go to school, etc. You take security for granted. You don't particularly think about what it is that produces that um, and what it is that uh, guarantees that. Um, and in that sense, in NATO countries, uh, in particular for the last generation, we've been very, very lucky that we've had that security mm -hmm. um, and that it's something that we have been able to, to take for granted. So sometimes we have to remind people that there are security issues, there are security challenges, and you need an organization, you need firstly national defense, but then you need an organization like NATO that can help uh, underpin uh, some of that security. Um, from my own perspective, I, I was brought up in the 1980s. My parents uh, grew up in the aftermath of the Second World War. I grew up in the 1980s, and, and it was always something uh, in our family that, that, that the kind of specter of the Second World War that both my grandparents fought in uh, was always there, and it was always discussed. Um, and there was always a reminder of the, the challenges and suffering that, uh, that Britain, as a country at the time, had suffered then. And in the 1980s, at the height of the Cold War, um, it was all the insecurity that was felt in Western Europe and in Eastern Europe as well uh, by the tensions between uh, the two blocs. Um, and so, you know, for me, growing up in that kind of context, um, right. those challenges were always very, very much part of my life. But I think uh, people who have grown up more recently have been much more fortunate in that um, those challenges are not so live. Mm -hmm. And do you feel that that makes them harder to engage with and, and, and talk about these issues? Because obviously, I mean, as you say, like my generation and, and, and the generations below me, um, you know, we didn't grow up during the Cold War. The, the, you know, the Second World War is something that we read up in history books. And the problem sometimes I feel like with history lessons is that it makes it feel very much obviously like history. So it's, it feels like a different world almost. You're learning about something that you just can't comprehend or engage with because it's just not your reality. Um, and because we haven't had any major conflicts in the sense that have directly impacted us, um, you know, there, there have been conflicts, but they've been so far removed from our from our day to day lives that it just doesn't it just doesn't compute, I guess. Um, so do you find those generations are, are, you know, are more challenging in terms of your kind of communications activities than, say, older generations that do have that link with, say, the Cold War or or, or, or that remember, you know, the aftermath of the Second World War, etc.? Yeah, I, I think that's right. And, and there's, um, there, there's nothing wrong with that. It's, it's entirely understandable. Uh, but as I say, it, it just adds an extra layer of challenge for us in trying to, uh, in trying to explain it. 
Um, but I mean, there, there are ways that we can do it. Um, also, you know, we, we don't want to uh, overly frighten people and say that the world is, a, is an incredibly dangerous place or everything's about to blow up. It's, it's not that. But it's just trying to talk to people about some of the challenges that, that do exist, but then um, how national defense and organizations like NATO are prepared, are ready, are standing up to try to face up to some of those challenges. So, yeah, sometimes it, it can appear to be a little bit abstract to younger generations. Um, and in particular, if, if they don't if they don't have the kind of family experience um, of uh, parents or grandparents who have uh, experienced war at first hand, uh, then, yeah, it's, it's an added challenge. <laughs> and, and would you say, because obviously a lot of these changes are um, within the alliance, um, do, do, do you see some of these challenges outside of the alliance as well? Or does it only exist within? Um, I think, I mean, yeah, outside the alliance to a certain extent as well. But, um, uh, you know, the, there are parts of the world uh, very close to uh, NATO, for example, the Balkans uh, or the Middle East, which have experienced uh, war much more recently. Um, and, and people have that uh, very direct experience and know uh, the pain and suffering that, uh, that wars can cause uh, in their countries. Um, prior to working at NATO, I worked in several countries that had been through uh, recent civil wars in particular, um, and, and the pain is still, it, it's like an open mm -hmm. wound, it's, uh, it's still there. So sometimes in, in those countries, it's easier to talk about um, the need for security and defense, but what then sometimes gets more complex is uh, talking about how societies can work together uh, and build something together on common foundations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Amazing. And um, speaking of obviously, you know, we, we talked a lot about uh, kind of individual freedoms and, and kind of human rights, these kind of um, these things that, you know, NATO strives to secure um, in terms of obviously, you know, lasting peace in Europe, um, common values like individual liberty, democracy, human rights and the rule of law, of course. Um, how does NATO disseminate these values within m member states, would you say? Um, this is, It's a good question. And actually, it's something that is quite debated um, within NATO. We have um, our founding uh, treaty um, is called it's called the North Atlantic Treaty or the Washington Treaty, which was um, written and signed in 1949. So um, many years ago, just after the Second World War. And I think in, in a way you have to kind of cast your mind back historically to what uh, life might have been like after the devastation of the Second World War. And the opening, what we call the preamble of the uh, of the treaty, which is sort of the opening paragraph of the treaty, um, talks about uh, nations and their desire to live in peace with all peoples and all governments, uh, determined to safeguard the freedom, common heritage and civilization of their peoples, founded on the principles of democracy, individual liberty and the rule of law. So this is if you like, the, the underpinning foundation of uh, the treaty that then goes on to talk about um, the need for national defense and the need for collective defense. But beyond that, NATO doesn't have any, um, any other treaties or any other legal obligations that bind member states to those principles of democracy, individual liberty, and the rule of law. Um, there's also so, so in that sense, we're very different from organizations such as the European Union, the EU, right. um, or the uh, OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, uh, both of which have um, more legal frameworks around uh, democracy, liberty, and rule of law. 
Mm-hmm. We just have these words in the preamble, but they are a, a founding principle uh, for the alliance, and uh, we work very, very hard to um, maintain those as principles and maintain the the idea of the importance of these uh, principles. Historically, um, there have been times where uh, um, member states of NATO have been through dictatorships. We look back to the 1950s, uh, 60s, and even the early 70s. Uh, for example, uh, uh, in uh, in Greece and Turkey at, uh, at different times, but there are other examples too. Um, where, if, if you like, there have been challenges to democracy, individual liberty, and uh, the rule of law. There are some commentators who say that even now, even in 2022, um, there are some NATO countries that uh, face challenges on these basic principles. Um, Now, to an extent, you can have a a debate about what you mean exactly by democracy, how do you define individual liberty, what do you mean by the rule of law? Um, But I think it's fair enough to say that there are challenges. There have been historically challenges in uh, NATO countries, and there are challenges today. The important thing for us is that we continue to talk about these principles. Um, We continue to highlight the fact that they underpin everything else that we do, while accepting that different countries at different times may have particular challenges uh, that they are facing. And if you look historically where uh, NATO countries have, for example, have uh, reverted to dictatorships, uh, after a while, history has moved on and they've come back to being democracies. So in the longer term, um, I think NATO has been very well placed in terms of uh, promoting the principles of democracy, individual liberty, and the rule of law. You can look at particular slices and uh, those slices don't necessarily look so good, those slices of history. Um, But overall, in the longer term, um, NATO has done quite well with this. Mm-hmm. No, that, that that is interesting because obviously, as you say, you know, there've been um, stints of of dictatorships and so forth. But um, it is true, you know, that most com- most countries or all countries have moved back towards democracy at at some point. Um, so, is there a policy when a member state kind of fails to uphold these values? I mean, you, you've mentioned obviously there have been stints when when dictatorships have been members. Um, but is there a policy, like what's, what's, has there been a reaction from NATO as in, you know, I don't know, nudging the country in, in the direction towards, um, you know, individual liberty, democracy and human rights? Or, or is it more kind of a laissez-faire, let's, that country is going through a challenge, let it resolve its issues on its own? I, I think you probably put your finger on it when you use the word uh, nudges. Um, I mean, we, we, we don't have, uh, formal mechanisms for holding countries to account for political policies or uh, policies on liberty or rule of law. Of course. Um, so in that sense, we are not like the European Union mm-hmm. or um, the Council of Europe or the OSCE. Um, it's it's more recognizing that we're a family of nations with um, some common interests and a common objective of collective defense. And that around the table, uh, around the table of 30, where allies meet uh, pretty much every day here in the headquarters where I'm talking from, they can discuss any issue uh, that comes to the table. And there are discussions, there are very often discussions around some of these core principles and around um, challenges to these core principles uh, in some countries within, uh, within the alliance. But if you like, it's better done, from our perspective, it's better done uh, 
if you like, around the kitchen table in the family, uh, keeping it as a private discussion uh, between member states uh, of NATO. And, you know, slowly and surely those uh, problems tend to get resolved. So does NATO endorse an interventionist policy, would you say, when it comes to human rights abuses? Um, and if so, could you give us an example? Because human rights, are, like, it's, it's a massive um, issue, has been, has been for some time. You know, it often gets quite a lot of, of press coverage. Um, and I was wondering, what, what, does, what does NATO's um, kind of position on uh, either being more interventionist or kind of... Um, and if so, um, are there any examples that you can think of? Where we've had um, interventions in uh, in the recent past, and I mean, I talk about the last of 20, 25 years, um, they've tended to be, if you like, security security or defense problems with a human rights uh, angle or human rights element, mm-hmm. I would say, rather than saying that there was a human rights problem that then uh, led NATO to uh, to an intervention. The, the two... Uh, Cases I'd draw your attention to uh, Kosovo, which I've mentioned before, mm-hmm. um, which was in um, 1999. Actually, we can even even go back before to the uh, the civil war in Bosnia um, in the early 1990s, uh, where NATO eventually sent a uh, peacekeeping force when <clears throat> when there'd been enough of diplomatic progress uh, for a force to be sent. Um, that uh, force participated in helping end. Uh, what was a brutal civil war with hundreds of thousands of people uh, who who had been killed, and where there were some horrendous human rights abuses, the worst human rights abuses on European territory since the Second World War. Um, but it was more, if you like, the intervention was it was more about uh, security and stability in the Balkan region rather than specifically driven by um, human rights. Right. Uh, in in Kosovo in 1999, um, similarly, um, there have been but there have been a number of diplomatic attempts uh, which had not uh, been successful at all. Uh, in the end, uh, NATO started, initiated a, a military campaign uh, against Serbia um, and the Serbian military based in Kosovo to draw an end to um, what were horrific human rights abuses. But again, it was about security and stability of, uh, of the whole region. Um, and then uh, finally, um, I'd mention uh, Libya in 2011. Um, this was actually uh, a, a campaign which was started by a number of European nations, um, a military campaign started by a number of European nations, which was uh, concerned about the uh, growing civil war uh, in Libya, uh, including uh, some real and potential massive human rights abuses by the then uh, Gaddafi regime. Uh, out of Tripoli, uh, which led to a military intervention, which uh, eventually brought an end to uh, the war of that phase. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's, it's quite often, I mean, with the examples that you've given, it's quite often that, you know, security and stability almost goes hand to hand with, um, with you know, potentially stopping human rights abuses, would you say? It's almost like it, it's, it's Yeah, I mean, of... it, it, it essentially, I, I think... Um, I mean, you, you can get human rights abuses at different levels, and I mean, these happen sadly on a daily basis, um, uh, including in some European countries, uh, some partner countries. Um, you know, sometimes they're at a level that can be dealt with by organizations like uh, the OSCE. Um, other times they can be dealt with by or responded to by more economic and political measures uh, through organizations like uh, the European Union. 
um, but they really have to get to a, a very dramatic level uh, if uh, a military intervention is required, um, you know, generally endorsed by the United Nations. Mm-hmm. And this is when NATO has a role. Of course, no, that makes that makes perfect sense. And um, one um, another thing I wanted to uh, to talk about is, of course, uh, uh, nuclear weapons. Um, we mentioned, you know, not yeah. not a. Uh, not uh, scaring everyone, so I think this is <laughs> quite a nice topic to move on to. Um, but nuclear weapons um, committed to NATO's defence have been, and of course, reduced by more than what was it, ninety percent since the height of the Cold War. Um, how do you balance defence strategy and non-proliferation aims? Uh, yeah, it, it's a. Um, it's a fascinating question, and it's one that we're constantly considering and reevaluating. But I, I would cast it um, in, in terms of thinking about um, how a country and an organization such as NATO can provide defense and security at the minimum possible level of uh, defense expenditure. Mm. So if you like, nobody wants to have excess weapons. Nobody wants to have weapons that they don't need. Nobody wants to have redundant weapons. Uh, These are expensive. Uh, They can be difficult to maintain. You need a lot of people to maintain them, uh, etc. So every country strives to have um, the right balance between security and defense, while at the same time minimizing uh, its military capabilities and its requirements for uh, weaponry. This includes uh, nuclear weapons as well. Uh, And this is why we've been able to reduce uh, the number of nuclear weapons by 90% uh, since the end of the Cold War, as as you said. If you look back historically uh, towards the end of the Cold War, and in particular in in the 1980s and the challenges faced in the 1980s, uh, there was a massive military buildup in the Soviet Union and on the US side and uh, across uh, NATO Europe as well. This included uh, nuclear weapons. Uh, There were growing arsenals uh, on both sides. Um, I myself grew up in in a part of the UK that was a couple of kilometers away from uh, an American uh, nuclear weapons base. We had, uh, I think it was 96 cruise missiles, nuclear-tipped cruise missiles, uh, basically in my back garden. Wow. Um, Now, um, the the quantity of nuclear weapons uh, across European Uh, well, across the alliance as a whole, including the US, but in in particular in Europe, has has dropped dramatically. And this is, we've been able to do this because uh, the amount of weaponry and the type of weaponry has dropped uh, on both sides. So the Soviet Union, uh, when it it dissolved, um, gave up uh, substantial parts of its arsenal. It kept some nuclear weapons, but it gave up substantial parts. The Americans reduced uh, their nuclear weapons uh, and the nuclear weapons they had based in Europe, which now reduced to uh, a, really a, a, a bare minimum. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been cost effective, uh, which means that uh, money has been able to be spent, be spent on other priorities such as health and education, um, while still um, maintaining a sufficient level of security and defense for NATO members. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's a fascinating um, balance that you're talking about there, because... Um, you know, y- y- people can almost be be forgiven in thinking that it's it's all about just dumping as much money as possible and dumping as much resources as possible into defence. And actually, there is a there is a balance because no one wants to be um, 
as you say, uh, you know, bloated with with arms and, and bloated with work. Because at, at the end of the day, you're you're kind of throwing money away at that point. You need that, as you say, you need that kind of balance. And it's better to have a um, small but effective, um, you know, um, stockpile and, and defense policy than, than than being massively overinflated. Because it, you know, it, it can also turn people's public opinion against um, against defense rather than exactly. actually understanding that this is something that's needed to protect everything else. Yeah, exactly. And this is what countries, they're, they're constantly assessing this uh, and constantly working out uh, what their real requirements are. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. And um, obviously NATO actively contributes to effective, you know, verifiable arms control, disarmament, as, as we already talked about, um, non-proliferation uh, efforts through its policies, activities, and its, of course, its members, member countries. Um, what role would you say does public diplomacy play in the effort to reduce nuclear stockpiling? Um, it plays quite a big role. Uh, I mean, largely, once again, it's it's explaining um, the policies of NATO uh, as an organization and the policy of uh, NATO countries as well. Um, in of NATO European countries, um, there are two that have um, nuclear weapons, their own nuclear weapons programs, the UK and France. Um, the US as a non-European uh, ally also, of course, has its own nuclear program. Um, and there are a number of um, uh, countries within Europe that host uh, U.S. Uh, nuclear weapons under um, a, a special arrangement, which goes back to the 1960s, called uh, called nuclear sharing. But a- as we've uh, adapted and adjusted, and we've been able to reduce uh, substantially the number of uh, nuclear weapons um, uh, in NATO territory, there, there have been two things. I mean, firstly. Uh, explaining to some parts of the population why we can do that uh, while maintaining uh, uh, sufficient defense and security for our countries so that people aren't frightened that we're giving up a deterrent, we're giving up something that's going to make us weaker or more vulnerable mm-hmm. as a result. Uh, explaining to people and persuading people why uh, the minimums that we now have are still an effective and credible uh, deterrent. Um, but I think we also have to recognize there are substantial um, constituencies in all NATO countries, but in particular in European NATO countries, that um, don't understand uh, or approve of the need for nuclear weapons uh, as a deterrent. So we still have a lot of explaining that we need to do um, on deterrence policy. So why we have nuclear weapons, um, why we have them in the configuration that we have, uh, what they're for, which are, so say, deterrent weapons, um, and uh, trying to explain uh, to people the value of those weapons in the wider context of our security and defence. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's, it's almost as if being caught, um, you know, between a rock and a hard place in the sense that you've got on the one side people that are, um, you know, that, that that want more of a deterrent that that need explaining as to why. As you say, a cut in these these say arms or whatever um, doesn't mean that you can't effectively defend um, the alliance. Still, uh, whilst on the other side, as you as you explain, you know you've got people that are saying, well, actually, we just don't need nuclear weapons. Full stop. And it's kind of finding that balance almost within within communications or whatever else to try and um, find out yeah. what what the majority would would want and what the majority think we need almost. Exactly, and sometimes within individual countries. Uh, that can be it can be fairly straightforward to get the balance, and I think you know within the UK, for example, uh, it, it's fairly straightforward to get that right. balance. 
Within other countries, uh, such as Germany, uh, the debate is uh, even hotter. Um, and it's, uh, it's much more difficult at a political level as well as at a public level. But then you can also, if you go further east, if you look at countries like um, the Baltic states uh, or Poland, um, who feel a, a very real threat uh, mm. day by day uh, from uh, their eastern neighbor, Russia, uh, populations there, as well as the government, but uh, populations, you speak to individual people, uh, for them, this can be an, an existential issue, that their country, they're frightened their country will not exist without sufficient uh, deterrence and defense. Um, and this is what uh, you know, NATO is, is able to provide. Um, and to a certain extent, for us, public diplomacy in, uh, in these countries is relatively easy from that point of view, because people there understand the importance of uh, deterrence. They understand the importance of defense. They understand the importance of uh, what NATO does, uh, including um, holding the nuclear deterrent uh, in other countries across the alliance. Um, so there, it's uh, it's a lot easier. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's and it, and it almost goes back to um, you know what, what we were saying earlier about about different generations, and this is you know different different geographical locations because obviously those countries are um, in a in a position geographically just that you know ordinary people can feel the kind of threat or the, or the possibility of a threat much more so than if you're say living in the UK or France or, or Germany or whatever. Um, so you suddenly start to see the, the need or, or, or you start to understand why um, defense and security is, is a part of, is a part of policies and, a part, and, and, and it's also very much a part of a part of our, our setup, our, our democracy, because these kind of things need to be protected. Um, NATO, obviously, NATO and, and, and allies are, are parties to the, you know, the the conventional armed forces in Europe uh, treaty, the Treaty of the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons, uh, the Chemical Weapons Convention, the Biological Weapons Convention, and other treaties and agreements that promote, you know, arms control, disarmament, and, and non-proliferation. Um, what role do, do these committees play in facilitating uh, dialogue within the public, would you say? Um, well, I think all of them, and, and you, you've highlighted yeah, a, a number of um, arms control treaties, which um, some of them date back uh, so 60, 70, 60 years. If we're looking at the um, non-proliferation treaty, for mm -hmm. example, um, uh, the Chemical Weapons Convention, Biological Weapons Convention, the Ottawa Convention are, are more recent. Um, they, they all um, target specific uh, issues, specific mm -hmm. uh, weapon systems or specific uh, forces. Um, and uh, they, I, I think, I mean, some are more prominent than others. And I think more people are likely to have heard of the Chemical Weapons Convention, the Biological Weapons Convention, for example. Yeah. Um, the, and the OPCW, the um, Organization for the Prevention of um, uh, Chemical Warfare, no, Chemical Weapons sorry, um, which won the Nobel Prize a few years ago uh, for its work, uh, in particular in, uh, in Syria. Oh, wow. um, I think with, with all of these, um, these treaties, conventions, uh, agreements, there are um, a huge number of people who work quietly, assiduously, in a very dedicated way behind the scenes on often very technical uh, but at the same time, politically sensitive and militarily, militarily very important issues. Um, they don't often um, shout from the rooftops uh, what they're doing. 
Um, but their work is critical in terms of uh, reducing uh, the types and the number and the amount of weaponry uh, that we have, uh, in particular in Europe, but uh, more broadly uh, around the world. Sometimes their work is uh, it's very, very slow pace. If you look at the, um, the non-proliferation treaty, for example, which has been going on, uh, which has been going for decades. Um, but over time, uh, the work done uh, by these people on, within these treaties or uh, these organizations uh, has been critical for uh, reducing a range of military threats uh, around Europe. Mm -hmm. no, um, thank you. For that. And, 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 you know, it's, it's, it is it is interesting that, um, as you say, they don't shout it from the rooftops and maybe sometimes um, you kind of think people should. Um, just because I think if people were more aware of um, of, of what these conventions do or want, you know, international organizations like NATO do, I think people would be more um, willing and able to have discussions about the kind of future of these organizations and um, be able to have more more concrete discussions about um, about things like, say, say, defense and security and its relevance to to democracy. Because sometimes when you think of you know democracy and you think of freedom of speech and you think of all these things, you often don't think of defense and, and and security as being a part of that conversation but as you've as you've rightly said many times it, it very much is we just don't think about it or don't see it as as having a link but actually a lot of these things do need to be protected and that you know maybe from the kind of conventional uh, use of force or or it could be things like disinformation and, and misinformation and kind of um affecting the way we we we, we gather information for for instance um but Piers, thank you so, so, so much uh, for this for this conversation. It's been really, really interesting and really useful. Um, and I uh, hope you have a amazing rest of your day. And uh, it's, it's it's been a it's been a pleasure. It's been um, I, I must say from my side, it's been a very interesting conversation as well. So um, uh, thank you very much for for your questions uh, and for your thoughts back as well. So thanks for that. Thank you for listening to Season 3 of Media Minded, the show guiding you through the age of disinformation. This podcast is produced by Shoutout UK and edited by Sabina McKenzie-Brown. Make sure to follow Shoutout UK on Twitter and Instagram to get updates on all our upcoming episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to the Media Minded podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast fixed. This podcast is made possible by the generous support and sponsorship of the US Mission to NATO. Thanks for listening and remember, stay informed.